Welcome to the Forge by Trust podcast. I'm your host, Robin Dreek, retired master spy recruiter and trust expert. This episode of Forge by Trust podcast is brought to you by my guest, Gavin Stone. Gavin Stone is a former civil servant for the British Ministry of Defense and has around 20 years experience working globally in the security and intelligence industry. Now you can gain from his experience and expertise from his new book, How to Tell If Someone is Lying, which he has recently released, as well as having a fiction novel on the way. For more information about Gavin, head over to his website, gavinstone.us. Coming up next on the Forge by Trust podcast. I get this thing where I get asked, you know, like, so you do body language. And I go, yeah, it's one of, one of the disciplines I study. And I go, right, what am I thinking? I'm not a mind reader. (laughs) (laughs) What are you doing when you're trying to detect deception? So the the simple thing is you're looking for change. You're looking for deviation. So these are the little things that you've got to take into consideration. Not just what's said, not just the way it's said, not just the body language, but every external factor that is possibly out there. Welcome to the show. I'm Robin Dreek, and on the Forged by Trust podcast, we decode the interpersonal communication skills of the world's most acclaimed forgers of trust. We unlock the skills and techniques from spies, spy recruiters, master interrogators, globally recognized behavioral experts, C-suite executives, entrepreneurs, acclaimed authors, and thought leaders. Each episode provides specific actions that you can immediately apply to any aspect of your personal or professional life. Today's episode, The Myths and Truths of Lie Detection with Gavin Stone. Gavin Stone is a former civil servant for the British Ministry of Defense and has spent around 20 years in the security and intelligence industry. He then turned to training and instructing new recruits and seasoned operatives and is now working on his career as an author. When Gavin has spare time, you can find him diving into a number of other disciplines. When he's not keeping his skills sharpened down the shooting range, he's constantly learning. Skill fade is not just physical. No matter how good somebody is at something, once they stop, skill fade begins. The longer it's left, the more the skills dissipate. To help him avoid this, Stone is constantly refreshing his skills and knowledge as well as learning more as he goes. Keeping his mind sharp is one of his top priorities, so Stone makes a point of constantly learning new skills like handwriting analysis, graphology, facial feature reading for profiling and neuroscience studies. During this episode, we're going to talk about his journey from skip tracing to intelligence officer, developing his rapport skills, how to stop looking like a victim, training your children in spycraft to foster their curiosity, detecting deception and dispelling deception detection myths, and his latest new book, How to Tell if Someone is Lying. Gavin Stone, the Renaissance man of intelligence. There we go. You bloody useless, aren't I? Uh, right. Uh, <laughs> Did finish your your little book right here. Oh cold, yeah. Cold read like a spy. I loved it. So, oh well, thank you. I'm glad you enjoyed it. So, did, did, was there anything useful from it for you? Absolutely. the The thing I really loved about it is you you synthesized right on down to these. Was it twelve nuggets mm-hmm. of statements, and these are great, and they're great open-ended statements that are very validating statements, mm-hmm. and which is for me, it's the third pillar of how to forge trust and build relationships is to seek the thoughts and opinions of others, which that was kind of our doing by making a presumptive statement, but it's a presumptive validation statement that are good for all human beings. So I, I loved it. I thought it's one of those great primers that if every 
not just intelligence officer, but anyone interacting with any other human being in the world would read, they'd be better off for it. Because if nothing else, it forces you to really focus on someone else and be curious. I thought it was great. Oh, brilliant. Thank you. Yeah, I, I love it. And I, I love when I first learned about all this and, and kind of the whole cold reading thing. I expected to kind of, when I, when I was starting to learn about all this, to kind of turn myself into some kind of Sherlock Holmes where I'd go, oh, you know, <laughs> his fingernails have grown an extra millimeter and, he, and he, you know, his shoes have got a little stain and he expected to learn all these little things, you know, with the notches on the belt so he's lost weight. And, and, and what it turned out to be was far from it. You make these kind of, you know, stock lines, as it were, which they fit everybody but sound unique to the person and then you just build on it from there, you know. So it was, it was fun. It was disappointing in some ways because I expected to kind of, you know, become the ultimate detective. But at the same time, it, it came, it, be, it became useful, went to parties and did all kinds of tricks and things. And, and uh, yeah, I got people believing I could see into their soul. <laughs> well, it's funny. You say fascinating things in there that you thought you're going to be this ultimate detective and see into people's, people's souls, or at least that's what your <laughs> people claim you can do when you're doing the, the cold reading. But in reality, you really are. You are, I, I've come up with this, term recently and that's what I, I gained from talking to lena cisco as well mm-hmm. and that's this holistic approach to engaging human beings in the intelligence world and holistic from the sense that it's looking at the whole and when looking at that whole you're looking for and identifying pain points and how to solve the pain points of others and so even in the the, the the fun little book with those 12 statements you make for the cold read, you're really identifying and, and touching the pain points all human beings have and saying, I see you and I'm here for you to resolve those pain points. And if nothing else, I'm going to be listening to you, which very mm-hmm. few human beings do. So it is really a, a whole person approach to it, I think. Yeah, it works. Well, like I say, I've had so many times for me, you know, I've been been uh, many when I was younger, at least going to parties and that kind of thing. You know, and and, and of course you'd use this on a, on a crowd of people and the big girls saying things like, you know, oh, nobody gets me like you do, or you know, you you know, you just understand me, you get me, and and it does give you that kind of like, a, like even if it's only a momentary bond, you know, it does kind of definitely create a a, a bit of rebond, a, a bit of a bond and rapport with them, you know. Uh, definitely. So with that, let's go into some backstory here. I mean, I love your LinkedIn page. All it says is intelligence officer. Yeah. That's a very broad, sweeping statement. Yeah. So let, let, let's dive a little bit into, into the background, Gavin. You know, how did you become this renaissance man of intelligence, as I'm calling you? <laughs> I, I wish there was some really, really like kind of fun and romantic story here, but it, it, it starts off quite boring. I was at home and there was a knock on the door and a friend of mine said, Gav, you're like kind of probably the most resourceful guy I know. How and old you, were you at the time when this oh, knock on the door? 19, 20, thereabouts. All right, good. Give or take, give or take a, th- a few parties. But yeah, <laughs> and, and it was somebody who, who I went to my old school with before I went to secondary school, but we stayed in touch. And basically, he just turned around and said, You know, look, I need, I need to find somebody. And, you know, I, you're, you're, the, you're the only kind of person I can think of who might be able to help me. So I said, okay. Well, All right. So let's pause there again. I'm sorry. I, every time I hear these fascinating statements, I want to explore them a little bit. <laughs> Why did he think you were the only person that could really help him do that? What was it about you back then that made you the 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 four 
forefather of modern day skip tracers, I guess. I wish. So I think just at school, I was somebody who could think outside the box with things. And I think through growing up, I, I was kind of... I mean, even now I get relatives, they ring me up and say, Gav, I've got a problem. You know, what, what, you know, how do I deal with this? Or friends or people who know me, you know, it, it's kind of people give me a call and say, I've never dealt with this kind of issue in my life before. You know, So you're pretty innovative. What would you do? <laughs> Possibly, yeah, you could go that far. So, 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 you, had, so you have an innovation brand is what you have. <laughs> I, I, I'd, I'd go with that. Why not? All right, um, <laughs> keep going then. So the knock on the door, and he says, "I need this the Renaissance man of innovation at the time instead of Intel." <laughs> yeah, and he, he just basically said, "You know, I've, I've got a week to find him," and, and I was quite happy to say that I didn't do it in a week; I did it in a day, um, nice. and found the gentleman and you know, give him the details, blah blah blah. And the short version is, I went home and didn't think too much more about it until the end of the month, or just after the end of the month came, and he came around with a load of cash for me, and I was like. What's this? He says, that's your half of doing the job. I was like, more than people you want finding. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, what did you have to do? And so take us back to this the skills. What did you do to find this, this unfindable person? Right. This is going to really spoil it for you now, because I'd love to say that there was loads of technical stuff involved and loads of secret surveillance. But the truth of the matter was I knocked on the door. and I'm going to make up the name Peter Smith just to use as a, sure. uh, you know, so don't get anybody. Protect the innocent, door. right? That's the one. And I, I knocked on the door and I just said, hi, I'm here for Peter Smith. And I went, yeah, one minute, I'll get him. And that was it. And what happens is in in this kind of world, well, they, they do something called a per-serve. And it's when a solicitor or a lawyer wants a, a court document, usually personally served on, you know, on that particular individual. Because what's generally happened is they've sent them one through the post. They've written on it, not at this address. Stuck it back in the mail with a smile on the face, thinking, "How? That'll get them." And, uh, <laughs> and, and of course, they don't think that somebody like me is going to come around. And I'm, I, you, 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 I start at the very address that they say they're not at, and ninety nine percent of the time, that's where they are. You know, and you did and, the number one thing that people need to do to be successful is you got out of doors. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can't recommend that enough for anybody for anybody who hasn't tried it recently. Boots on the ground worked worked fantastically. What made you? Uh, so what made you that kind of person growing up, you think? Were you always were you always this adventurous young kid that just wanted to see and do things and had a different look outlook on life when you saw challenges? No, no. I was a whiny little spoiled shit at first. Uh, <laughs> shit at first. Uh, I, I, was, I was. I was like the neighborhood wimp. And when, when I first started, and what happened was I... I, I I've got three older half brothers from my dad's previous marriage, but my, there, was, there was just myself from to start with when my dad remarried, and I was the only child technically. And I grew up until the age of six, thinking this is cool. I can just ask and have. And then all of a sudden, my, my little brother came along, and daddy was out working all the time, and mommy was very tired with the newborn baby all the time, and the old ask and have routine wasn't working. And it didn't take me long to figure out that if I wanted something. I had to get it for myself, you know. It was kind of, you know, being the older sibling, mommy was feeding the baby. If I wanted cereal, I had to drag the chair across, get it out of the cupboard, make a mess of the kitchen, get told off later, but at least I had some cereal. So I became very resilient and very self-sufficient. And that kind of stemmed there at the age of six and just grew by the age of, well, by a teenager at least, I was running off and doing all sorts and didn't really want to know. I was kind of doing your own thing. Yeah, because I had to go in my own way. <laughs> so after you you tracked down your first skip, what did you wind up doing next? <laughs> 
Well, I mean, it was literally a case of, look, you know, that paid well for something that was really, really easy. So I thought, you know, this is something I, I could I could do, which didn't take much time. And, and that was like a slippery slope for me. I mean, yeah. it was literally, it is underrated, but it is the bread and butter stuff. You know, it, it, it's where a lot of your private detectives and that kind of thing do, you know, the, the majority of their bread and butter work here in the UK. And it was, like I say, it was, I won't go, I won't make it sound that easy that, you know, you can do it in your sleep. But the majority of the time, it wasn't difficult. And that led to then looking into all types of things from marital affairs to, you know, just surveillance for, for kind of fraud or, or, or that kind of... And it just kind of built up from there. And I went from doing like the covert surveillance for, for private clients onto then government uh, contracts. And, and it just, it ended up growing legs before I know it. I was doing everything from perimeter testing to, to kind of just stuff all over the place and... Once I got well rounded, I got a, I managed to drop on very, very lucky with a, a really good broker, and he was fantastic. He constantly kept ringing me up and just saying, "Look, got more work for you. Do you want it? You're working with these guys. You're covering that guy." Or and that was it. So it's really interesting. You obviously have a lot of technical skills to do these things because you know anything in life requires a skill set. Mm-hmm. But a skill set's only half the equation because you can have the greatest skills in the world, but if you don't have the ability to forge relationships, then the skill set's going to stand alone by itself and never be used because no one wants to work with them. Yeah. How did how did that work for you? I mean, how did did you network intentionally? Did you forge trust intentionally? Or is it just a natural state of your being where people just like to work with you? Because obviously that's what was going on. You had you created a very good brand. I think from growing up and moving from town to town, school to school, and basically having to mix in quick, get the hang of things quick. You know, I was always the new kid in the class. And, you know, wherever we moved, I had to kind of mix in and blend very, very rapidly. You know, I didn't want to be the one that was, you know, back at the class going hands up again. I don't, I wasn't here for this. We didn't learn this. So I kind of managed to very quickly learn to adapt to wherever I was, whether it was a new school or whether it was a new town, whether it was a new play group or whatever. And with that, I, I built the ability to build rapport with people pretty quick to, to kind of, and it did have its downsides as well, because then I'd got the whole kind of non-attachment as quickly as everything could be in my life. Whereas the first time it happened, I'd get upset as a child, you know, another place, another school. And I soon become really, really thick skinned to it. And it was kind of, yeah, we're moving again. So I'm like, okay, you know, do you want to say goodbye to your friends now? Right. <laughs> and so it was, it was pretty sad and, and I didn't end up forging too many long-term friends, but it did me a lot of good in a lot of other ways. So, and that gave me the ability to be able to get into pretty much any environment and within no time at all, mixed like I'd been there for years. And I know you're well known for your nonverbal and body language analysis, which it's it's becomes obvious where it comes from. Very much like Joe Navarro when he immigrated from Cuba and didn't speak the language, you become really attuned to your environment to try to fit in. And that's exactly what you're doing for moving schools so much. And I think a lot of people can identify with things like that, mm-hmm. you know, growing up where you feel awkward and you feel out of place. And so you're trying to fit in rapidly. Is that where your passion for body language came in? I'd like to say it's possibly the foundation for it. I mean, don't get me wrong, I'm not like a, a human chameleon, but I mean, and certainly not to the levels of Joe Navarro. I mean, he's just a, a, a mountain in the field, just a mountain <laughs> guy. But, but yeah, that it kind of, it would have started there. And then growing up in a big city, a small kid on your own in a big city, it, it's, there are parts of the 
the Midlands where if you walk late at night, you've got to know how to walk in order to stop yourself getting killed. And yeah, even me and my wife, you know, I, she's got this thing where we'll walk hand in hand. And if we're walking past a particular shady part of town, you know, whether we it doesn't matter where we are, whether we're in Miami, whether we're in England, I can feel her tensing up. And she right. just rigid walk and I'll say, stop walking like a victim. <laughs> yeah, you know, I'll say, you know, and, and and she relaxes a little bit, but you know, but I can feel her trying to pick up the pace to get past that particular area. How do you stop walking like a victim? Well, that'll be Joe Navarro's specialist area. Well, you just said it. <laughs> I'm going um, down with you. You, you, you literally, you, you have to relax and you have to look like you just don't care. Right. Like you, you do not care. And and the reason you do not care is because you can handle anything that's thrown at you. Because at the end of the day, if you look like you're you're tense and you're scared and you're frightened and you think, oh, get me out of here quick, people pick up on that. People oh, can yeah. see that and spot it a mile away. And and of course it was it was something that I, I learned very, very quickly. All right. So what was your first job? If you're, what are you, okay, I'll reverse it a little bit. What are you allowed to say about what you did for the, the British government? Right. So I did everything bass backwards my entire career. So in, instead of kind of starting at the top end and, and as a civil servant and then working my way into the private sector, I started in the private right. sector and worked my way into the, <laughs> into the government side. The private sector was great. It was no matter what I was doing, whether I was covering on short term contracts, whether it was holiday leave, whether it was just a short term job, whatever. It was, it was high pay, which was brilliant. But there was always the downside of there's no pension, there's no perks, there's no right. none of the extra things that people who work for the government or work for an employee get. And, and all the things that families want you to have, yes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Which was great when I was young and stupid. Now I'm old and stupid. But the <laughs> but the, the form our own <laughs> club. <laughs> I'm with you. The, the whole kind of enjoying it and the excitement of it all was brilliant, but I always secretly envied the guys who had that steady routine and they had all the perks. And and so after doing it for a long time, I'd done a lot of contracting for different governments, for different private clients, for, for people in different departments all over the place. I managed to rub shoulders with the right guy to become a British servant for the MOT. The waiting was a nightmare because it was around about 12 months of, of background checks and all other things and before I could even get security clearance, before I could actually even kind of you know get issued the first bit of kit and eventually when i got there i did it for a very short time and i hated it absolutely hated it I re- oh, the, the, the greener grass that i've been so envious of for so many years was driving me insane and the reason being i, I know this is going to sound really really self-centered now but previously as a contractor i was given a task and it didn't matter what the task was it was kind of you know anything from we need a picture of this guy you know go to that right. country get us a photo of him anywhere and it was like okay and that was it and i and that was all i had you know so i picked how i got there how i did it how i took the photo i, I did absolutely everything from start to finish handed over the photo gave them the invoice and 30 days later i had an excuse for why i wasn't getting paid uh, so, but I, you know, eventually usually got paid but so so i was literally so independent with it and left to my own means that when I started for the Ministry of Defence, it was there was this whole rigmarole for anything, 
Now, help me understand, Gavin, because we have a lot of guests that or you know, people that tune in from the from all parts around the world and don't know the UK system. And I'm not even super familiar with it. I've worked with MI5. I've worked with MI6. What does MOD, the Ministry of Defense, do? Yeah. Like, how's that fit? It's like for me, I'm I'm equating that as the same as the in the US as a defense intelligence agency, the DIA. I mean, where is that all? Kind so of the, the DLD over there, your Department of Defense is pretty much the equivalent of our MOD over here. Right. And uh, um, whereas the DLD will overlook a lot of things that all their different agencies and, and, and military bodies do, the MOD pretty much do the same over here. A lot of interagency kind of segregation where, you know, they're, they're each left to their own thing. They, there are, they, they do operate together sometimes when need be, but the majority of the time each area is left to do their own thing. So to help people understand like the difference between a lot of the intelligence agencies in the UK, MI6 is, is form, commonly known as MI6's SIS, which is the more like the international assessing threats from abroad and, and bonds <laughs> yeah and then you've got mi5 which is more of your yeah inland threats so now that doesn't mean that mi6 doesn't operate within the uk and it doesn't mean that mi6 doesn't operate abroad if the need arises right. they will do and they will work together GCHQ is obviously monitoring the communications primarily that are going on, although they have their intelligence officers too. And then the, the pyramid just goes out and out and out. And the, the, you know, but the MOD generally oversees the lot. Okay. So your James Bond, for, for those who don't know, when he applies for a credit card, can't write secret spy for the SIS or, or uh, right. <laughs> kind of intelligence officer for MI6. It doesn't work like that. It, it, it's civil servant. That's his, that would be, you know, if James Bond existed, that would be his official title because of the fact that right. he's not really meant to let anybody know. So, so yeah. when you came on board with the MOD then, what was your primary job in tasking? There was a multitude of roles from everything from infrastructure security to intelligence reports and, and, and everything else. Uh, okay. A lot of it was mostly sitting in an office. There was some out, out and about stuff, but the majority of the time you were sat at a computer. They'd got three or four different systems before they converted to ModNet, and none of the systems talked to each other. So when you'd write a report on one to say you'd done the training on the other, you had to report, write a report on another. And of course, you'd find yourself writing the same things three or four different times and sending lots of different emails. It's just a clerical nightmare. And then again, like I say, anything you did, whatever it was, you you, you couldn't do anything without written permission, requesting permission. You know, you, you wanted to park your car in a different space. <laughs> email sent, you know, and a two-week reply. And a, you know, it was it was just it was so much that i just felt so constrained trying to do the job that i, I said I, I can't do this anymore I, I i need to go back to you know the, the ability to be able to do it it actually it ended up restricting me and, and stopping me from being able to do my job properly because mm-hmm. instead of just cracking on with the job everything i did i, I wonder if i'm allowed to do this right Can right and, and then there was cost of, i need to ring my supervisor and uh, you know or, or the officer in charge or whatever and say look can we do this? And to be fair, he was pretty good. His motto was, it's better to seek forgiveness than permission. Right. <laughs> so a lot of the time he was like, do it afterwards. Yeah, do, do it and ask me afterwards and I'll tell you, you shouldn't have done it. I'll shout at you, we'll have a cup of coffee and then you go back to work. <laughs> right. All right. Yeah, I've been fortunate to be in similar situations as well because the <laughs> the government loves to kill innovation. And when you're in a world of intelligence, yeah, 
you have to stay ahead of the adversary. And the only way to stay ahead of the adversary is to innovate, see around corners that other people don't even know there's a corner. Exactly. And and especially when you're a Renaissance man of innovation like you, that must be bone crushing. How long so did how long did you stay with the MOD then before you got uh, frustrated? It was actually less less than a year. So even though I've done <laughs> contracting for them, done lots of contracting for them previously for years and years and years. Right. But I was actually officially on the books as a, as a civil servant. It was like nine, 10 months, something like that. And, and I just said, look, I'm really sorry. It, I would have probably stayed a little bit longer, but we had a little bit of an argument over. I had two deaths in the family very close to each other. I had a 200-mile drive back up to my hometown in the Midlands. And it, it was the, the two funerals were, were very close together. And I didn't want to drive all the way up, come all the way back down, drive all the way back. So I just thought I'd stay in the Midlands while I'm there. I needed a few days off and it would decline. So I went to the office and said, look, you know, this time off, whatever you need to do, make it happen. I said, because I'm going to these family funerals. I said, I've missed right. in the way of weddings, funerals and, and all manner of things in the past doing this bloody job. It's not happening. And they said, you know, you, you, you can't do it. I said, look, it wasn't a question. And, and that was where it all went technical. <laughs> <laughs> it all went technical. <laughs> so what? So what happened after MOD then? So I, I I still stayed contracting for the government and then I went into the training side of things, which was absolutely brilliant because it allowed me to uh, work in the private sector without doing the kind of grotty stuff where you're lying in the mud or sleeping right. in the doorway in the rain or doing whatever you need to do. Um, and, and yes, I've done all of those things. And, and it allowed me to kind of say, this is how you do it and do some practical lessons with people but in the ways I wanted to do. So if it was a really dreadful, miserable, raining day, we could do classroom work. If it was a bright and sunny day, we could go out into the city and enjoy it. And, and that was good. And that was both for government and private people. So, you know, you got one of the training companies I worked for in London, we're, we're a close protection company, and I used to help them to train in the uh, surveillance side of it and some of the close protection stuff. And then with the government, you've got everything from new recruits just about to go out into the field to seasoned operatives who were doing either refreshers. I just wanted to know what the latest kind of trends were. And you, the good guys in this game... They're the ones who are always willing to say they're not the they're not the guys who say I know what I'm doing. I've been doing this for years. Right. They're the open-minded ones who say, "Is there something new out there? I want to know what it is. Teach me. If I don't know it, show me." And and that that to me, you know, you you, you know, sometimes who's going to be awkward in the class and who's not. The ones who are sitting there with their arms folded saying, "You're not going to teach me anything." You think, "Oh dear, it's going to take a lot to win him over." But it makes how, it how often do you find? people being open to learning compared to being closed? The longer they've been in an industry, the less they think that you can teach them and the harder they are to, to kind of win over. I generally find it, it, it's a bit like Dunning-Kruger's peak. It's like when they first start and get through their initial training, they do, they, they're at the top of Dunning-Kruger's first peak and they're like, I know everything. And then all of a sudden they start to see that they don't know everything and they're coming back down the other side of that peak. And they then become open to saying, okay, maybe I don't know everything. Teach me a little bit more. Then when they realize the reality of it, that slow second peak starts to climb for them. What do you think that you're doing that it's allowing them to open up their minds that seem to be so closed. It, it's it's a challenge I think many people have in a workplace, whether they're in a training environment or just an environment where you have a lot of senior people that are very closed-minded and they're locked down. How do, how do you think you open them up? The best way is, uh, and it, what, what works for me is, is to ask them 
what their opinion is of something. And it thoughts and opinions, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, you know, I mean, nobody likes a whole death by PowerPoint presentation. So you get to a slide and, and it says, you know, you're presented with situation X. Um, and rather than me trying to tell them how to deal with it and say, you do this, you do that, and sit there with them rolling their eyes going, yeah, 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 we know, we know, we know. You turn around and say, right, what would you do in this situation? What would, what would be your, you know, and, and you, you make it as interactive as you can, get them telling everybody what they do, ask other people if they think they're right or wrong or if there's anything to add to it, and then literally if there's anything more that I know or that they've missed or whatever else, just put it on the top as a little cherry and say, there we go, lesson complete, wasn't that easy, you guys are good, give them all the praise you can for saying, you know, kind of, you know, basically doing your job for you. <laughs> Gavin and Stone, folks, the master facilitator right there. <laughs> Drop the mic. He's done. That was fantastic. Really good. So, Gavin, being the renaissance man of intelligence that you are, very much like Leonardo da Vinci, he was a master of a lot of things, but he created the Mona Lisa. Mm-hmm. What's your Mona Lisa? What, what do you think is your number one thing that you are really good at? Still a work in progress. So my nine-year-old daughter has been getting training from me unconsciously from a very early age. If she follows in my footsteps, she will be absolutely amazing. So from the age of, I think it was seven, I first got her out with her rifles learning to shoot. Ah. She could count in nine different languages by the age of five. Um, How many languages do you speak? Me, I, I speak a little bit of all sorts, enough to get me by. So a little bit of Russian, just, just basic infantile Russian to get me by. I've forgotten more German than I can remember. French, I probably know, called Isaac Menage et Toi and Poisson. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and, uh, and I can count in a few different languages because that was always useful, whether it was Japanese or whether it was you know French, German, Spanish or whatever. The ability to be able to say the number of something you want is usually kind of useful. So, so yeah, I don't, I don't, I'm not fluent in any language, but no little bits of enough of each language to, to kind of get me by. It's it's fascinating. You seem to have a level of curiosity. Would you agree with that? Definitely. Yeah, and is that something you're giving your daughter? Yeah. Um, how do you how do you foster curiosity at that age? That I mean, we're naturally born with it. How do you keep it going? It's difficult because even now she's at that preteen age of like, Ugh. Right. <laughs> and, and, and it's like, come on, let's do it. Yeah. So it's really, really difficult. But if you can make it rewarding in some way or another and give her something, give her some benefit from it, that is going to be. Uh, so. One of the things we do, I'll give you a perfect example. We, we play what I call the silly plate game. And this is where we get into the car and we go on the journey. And every time the car changes behind us, she has to say the make model color. And the last three letters <laughs> on, the, on the license plate, she has to give me the, a silly word from it. You know, so if it's like LCK, she can say. And for those listening, I apologize for laughing because literally he's training his daughter to be an intelligence officer running a <laughs> surveillance detection route. So it's brilliant. We go, we go into a restaurant, and she knows where I want to sit now. You know, she's, right. she's like, you want to be at the back of the room, so you can see the exit, you can see everybody in the room, have a good view, and you know, she she's brilliant. She's most of the time she's she's counting the CCTV cameras quicker than I am. So she, she you know, I don't know where to call you a great dad or just an evil one. <laughs> it's just fun. It's, it it re- really is just fun for her. But the, the thing you're is, you're teaching her not just curiosity, but the power of observation. Yeah. Again, going back to Joe Navarro, his last book, which people on the show have heard me rave about numerous times, the 
be exceptional. The second trait of the exceptional is awareness. Yeah. Is just not seeing things, but actually taking in the information and interpreting what is that? What's it mean? How's it impact me and the world around me? That's fantastic what you're teaching her. Yeah, situational awareness is, is, is huge. And I mean, I've had it from when I used to go running and and I, I would literally kind of, you know, I'd, I'd go around, you, know, you have young girls walking home with, with earphones in and hoodies up and things like that. And I'd give them, deliberately give them a wide berth and then still jump as I, as I went past them, you know? And like, right. And I think, dear, dear, you you, you know, you, you're kind of, you're, you're a walking target. You're a victim waiting to, to you know, your accident waiting to happen kind of thing. And of course, you, you know, you see the same thing crime reports again and again and again he came out of nowhere it all happened so fast and and that's not the way it really is so so yeah that situational awareness and building upon it it helps her in many ways it helps her to know her route home it helps her to know when she's going the wrong way so you know if if she's in somebody else's car she can go hang on this isn't the way to nanny and granddad's house you know so it's right yeah, so we do the we do these things. We, we you know we look for landmarks, we look for handrails, we we look for all sorts of things, and most importantly, she needs to know when she's been followed. And and if she never becomes an intelligence officer, if she never works in this industry, that's fine by me. But if she grows up and it just uses that bit of situational awareness to her advantage and it saves her life just once, it was worth it. And also, these are just phenomenal life skills. And this kind of brings me to the a great transition to really what you do well that you haven't even mentioned. And that is the the controversial area of lie detection, deception <laughs> detection, which requires an immense amount of observation. And folks like Joe Navarro and Dr. Abi Murano, who's been on the show, and all these other experts that are just looking at nonverbal behavior alone will tell you you cannot detect deception through nonverbal behavior alone. So it does require these amazing powers and skills of observation. So when you are actually dispelling the myths of the deception detection, as I have on our graphic behind us, <laughs> what are you doing when you're trying to detect deception? So the the simple thing is you're looking for change. You're looking for deviation. You have to baseline a person because if you know when they're telling the truth and how they normally act when they're telling the truth, you can then be able to differentiate from when they are speaking. You, know, you can see that change. And what areas are you looking for change in? Because some people get really fixated. They're listening listen to Paul Ekman's, looking at the micro expressions of the face. But when you're looking at this, kind of go back to that word I mentioned earlier, I think the holistic outlook on this is what things are you baselining when you're looking and regarding a human being to do this? Absolutely everything. So I'm looking for the throat. If they're gulping, I'm looking for their blink rate, breathing rate what they're doing with their body, what they're saying, how fast they're saying it, the pitch, and, and the, the words that are being used, which get discounted a lot. I'm, I'm qualified in statement analysis. I was actually kind of trained in the guy who who, where, who created it. I'm looking at the psychology behind the words they're saying. I'm qualified in psychology as well. And, and, and combining, so I, what I call it is combined communication analysis. Oh, so great word uh, combined communication analysis. I love that. <laughs> CCA for sure. And what that what that gives you is not just the body language, not just the the, the one thing or the other, not just the psychology, but all of it together. And I get asked a lot, well, how can you watch all of those things? How can you watch somebody's blink right. and, and their throat and their breathing and where they're breathing from and listen to the words and their body language? And the, the only way I can explain this is 
If you remember when you first started driving a car, the very first time you got in and you were like push-pull, push-pull with the steering wheel, you had to consciously look where the, the stick shift, if it, if it was a stick shift, you know, where it was, look where the handbrake was, and, and kind of you were aware of where the clutch was. And if you had to put the, the turn and, signal on... And, and again, for those that aren't watching, you can tell he's from the UK because he's doing it completely on the wrong side of his body. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, we drive on the wrong side of the road. Over yeah, there. I know you do. Jeez. Um, anyway, keep going, uh, Gavin. <laughs> well, we have to be unique in one way or another. So, yeah, you know, but... but so. This is what you like when you're first doing it. You know, you're, you're physically looking for the for the, the signal stem to click it on and so on and so forth. Eventually, you get to the point where you reach that level of unconscious competence, where you're getting in the car with your briefcase in one hand, a donut in your mouth, a coffee in another, on your mobile phone. You know, getting the keys out of your pocket, and before you know it, you you know you're pulling away and you're. You're using your mirror, you're using your indicator, you're using your, your stitches, but you don't need to look for where they are because you know where they are. You've been driving for that many years, so it doesn't matter that you, you've kind of put your seatbelt on with a donut in your mouth. You've got so used to it. And I don't drive like this, by the way, in case there's any police officers watching in the... Yeah, so, but you, you do get that used to it. You get that kind of good at it that you, you don't need to feel around for things anymore. You know, if the radio's too loud, you can just reach over and turn it down. If whatever's going on, you, you, you're in such a habitual state of knowing where everything is and how to do it, that it, it becomes second nature. First of all, I'll, I'll say how remarkable it is that you can do that for all the reasons you stated that people ask you, how can you observe this and this and this and this? Because even from my own standpoint, I can't. I can listen to your words or I can watch you non-verbally. I can kind of do the two together-ish because <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm looking for congruence between those two things. But I, I'm, I'm really focused mostly on the face and up because I can't bring in that much. I know I would get better and better over time. How many interviews and interactions did it take you to do? Because I don't want people walking away saying, hey, I can just take one one course in five minutes and talk to three <laughs> people and I got this down. How many? No. How many, How long did it take you to be able to do this at a competent level, do you think? Yeah, a hell of a long time. And even now, there are times when, you know, if I'm not distracted, not literally switching it on, you know, that, that I can miss things quite easily. And, and like I said, I'm not, when I'm doing this, I'm not scanning constantly up and down your body to see, you know, is right. his throat moving, is his belly moving. It, it's it's quite simple. It's a bit like if you're sitting on a couch opposite somebody and they're, they're sitting there with their wife and she says something and he gives her a little kick. You, you're not necessarily watching his feet the entire time, but in your peripheral vision, you know, you see that little ankle movement and you think, okay, <laughs> you know. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe they didn't want to talk about that at that particular time. So so you don't you don't necessarily have to watch everything. But if I'm looking, say, at your eyes, I'm watching your blink rate, I'm watching your eye accessing cues, but then I see it in my peripheral vision from your throat, then again I can look down on register. Maybe I don't even need to look down, but I can register that it's happened and at the point it happened while I'm listening to your words. So you're not you're not literally focused on one particular area you're kind of softening your gaze a little bit to take the whole picture in and then if you see a, a particular movement action or something happening then you can go okay that that happened at this point along with this this and this i need to pay a bit more attention there and, and probe further yeah you've flexed that observation muscle really <laughs> strongly because that's what you're doing you're just seeing all these deviations from these powers of observation is there any one out of all the behaviors you're observing and watching to do this? Is is there a trend that people 
generally have when they're trying to deceive someone or does it really just depend on the individual there are so there's there's a lot of body language myths and i i guess right, that's a good let's so let's start there let's okay. dispel some body language myths about this tech and deception so, detection then I, I get this thing where I get asked, you know, like, so you do body language. And I go, yeah, it's one of one of the disciplines I study. And I go, right, what am I thinking? <laughs> I go, no, I'm not a mind reader. <laughs> you know, this, this is just where well, I Well, like Ken Coldry, you do really well with these 12 statements. <laughs> yeah. Watch this. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, I, I do know one or two tricks that were taught to me. But, uh, but yeah, you know, think of a number between one and 10. It was number seven, right? This is the most <laughs> common pick number. But, but, you know, in reality, you can't read, well, I'm not able to read somebody's mind, but reading body language is not a, a a written text. So, and there is no what I call body language dictionary. So you can't have crossing his arms equals defensive, opening his legs. There's no this equals that. Right. What you have to look for is, is kind of clusters of actions that are incongruent with their normal behavior. So I guess, you know, a lot of people will say to me, oh, you know, I was, I was talking to my boyfriend and when I mentioned this girl's name, he crossed his legs. What does that mean? It means he crossed his legs. Right. You know, without being able to put the conversation into context, without being able to see all the other actions and everything else, I really couldn't tell you. So, you, you know, so reading body language is, is not this kind of, you know, one action equals one thing. You just have to, I love the way Joe Navarro puts it, it's comfort and discomfort. Right. You tell whether people are comfortable in a situation or uncomfortable in a situation. And and if they're uncomfortable, it doesn't necessarily mean they're lying, but you can then ask yourself why. Right. And, and then go further. <laughs> right. And that's what uh, you said that so succinctly and perfectly. I've repeated those words by Joe myself many times and, and yourself. It's just looking for comfort, discomfort. If you see discomfort, explore what's causing it. Could be deception, could just be a really bad thought and a really bad day. Yeah. I I mean, you hit the nail on the head there because that's something else I I need to address is this kind of everything has to be taken into context. Absolutely everything. So you can't just like all of a sudden say, oh, they're, they're showing these particular signs. Therefore, it must mean that. There could be anything from they might have a headache. They might be cold. They might have had a bad curry the night before and need to run to use the the, the bathroom. There could right. be any number of things that you've got to take into consideration. So, you know, this, this is something with my approach where I, I told a story about, I put it in my book about, I'll, I'll try and summarize it a little bit, but I watched recordings of an interview and an initial interview, one of the suspects, I will use the term suspect, but one of the suspects was basically very open with her body language, didn't really show anything to hide. Everything was nice and easy. It was a quick informal interview view and she was let go later on she was brought back and in this interview i watched the second recording and all the way through it she kept going every time she said particular things and, and every time a particular subject was was brought up and she kept on doing this thing where she was you know rubbing the top of her lip under her nose mm-hmm. and i was like oh that wasn't there before then i did the deadly mistake instead of discounting it and looking for something separate and individual I looked for things to back up what I'd seen and I'd got confirmation. Confirmation bias. bias. Yeah. It is the worst thing in the world. You're not kidding. You know, I've known lots of law enforcement folks that have taken classes on deception mm-hmm. detection. And now all they're doing is looking for deception. 
Exactly. If you're looking um, for it, you're going to yeah, find it. That's yeah. my exact words in the book. If whatever you look for, you'll find. Right. Um, I, and this is this is what it comes down to. So I had to, uh, and, and this is where I really learned the hard way because I I spotted this one particular red flag or source lead, as they're called, or whatever you want to label it as, and. I, I was like, oh, okay. And then I looked for other stuff. And because I was looking for it, I found it. And then I got to the point where I was like, ha, let me so go and speak to her. When I did finally get in to speak to her, I walked through the door and I realized the mistake I'd made because the first interview was recorded in December. And the second interview was recorded a few months later. And when I got to see her, we were at the start of summer. And she got a big red nose, and the pollen count was really high. Ah. <laughs> and then I realized the mistake I'd made within seconds. And I said, Here's ah. your context. So the, these are the little things that you've got to take into consideration, not just what's said, not just the way it's said, not just the body language, but every external factor that is possibly out there that you need to take into consideration to find out why somebody might have that little tell going on that little red flag. Or, or that. So, so keep keeping that open curiosity at the forefront of everything will help offset anything else to offset that confirmation bias that people should be doing. <laughs> yeah. And, and again, asking yourself, am I doing this through community confirmation bias? You know, am, am I looking for something to back up something I've seen? Or am I discounting what I've seen and now starting afresh without that? And that's where I try and operate from. If I see a red flag, I'm saying, right, I've made a note of it. Now put it aside. Now look again. And if there's no more red flags, then it's like, okay, there's not enough there to go on. If I get three, which seems to be my magic number, then all of a sudden I'm like, okay, now, now we've got three different individual source leads that are showing me that this could be an area of concern. And I love it. You're coming up with a theory. And then as soon as you have a theory, you challenge that theory to, yeah. or hypothesis, I should say, you challenge that hypothesis to see, to try to prove or disprove as dispassionately as you can is a great exactly. methodology. Mm -hmm. So with that, you mentioned it, that you're, you've re-updated or updated your book Tell yeah, us about a, that. A second edition to the lie detection book that is conveniently called How to Tell If Someone Is Lying. The perfect title does what it says on the tin. And it, it was something that I, I put out there initially that was something I put together. I heard I heard a phrase that somebody said to me once, there's no better business card than your book. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> like, right. So I thought, I could do with one of these books. So so I, I put it together reasonably quickly. I, I put enough in it to what I, what I thought at the time would kind of you know, get people who had an interest in the topic, kind of uh, some of their uh, questions answered. And now, a few years later, some of the things that I've learned and, and changes and advances in, and, and knowledge and studies that have, that have gone on, we, we, you know, we're constantly trying to improve ourselves. It's got me looking back at the old stuff and going, right, this is a bit outdated now. I can go into this further. I can give people a lot more quality for, for when they purchase a book, a lot more quality content for their money, as it were. So... I've decided to do a second edition and, and hopefully with a bit of luck, I, I believe it to be so much better than the first. So, there's, there's the there it is in, in its <laughs> draft format. Draft and, format at the moment. So and I'm very proud that I have a PDF copy of it and, and pouring through it as well. And when this show comes out, for those listening, it'll uh, I believe it'll be on the shelves at the same time. So if you're listening to this, go get it on Amazon because it is there. <laughs> Brilliant, thank you. And Gavin, where can people find out more about you? And include with that, what didn't I ask you that I should have asked you that you wanted to share? <laughs> Sure. So on all major social media websites, you can check out my own website, which is gavinstone.us. 
or gavinstoneauthor.com. And the, the the question or, or the subject I wanted to bring up is a book that I, I read a while ago. I've now read it three times and bought the audio book. It's phenomenal. And it's a book called Atomic Habits by James yes. Clear. James Clear. Uh, I've, I've studied it as well. Fantastic book. Go ahead. Tell me about it. I, I, I have to love, I, I love his theories in it. I, I love the way he, he reveals so much about how small changes can change somebody's life so much. I love learning myself. I love to push myself. I love to, to go beyond my comfort zones and my boundaries. And, 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 you know, and this is something that is something that has helped me. That book has helped me so much that I can't give it enough credit for helping me to advance in my life. I recommend it to other people who have come back to me and said, thank you so much for recommending it. And by the way, I'm not on commission. I don't even know James Clear. Just, just so, so, so. And I'm looking for it on my shelf right here too. I've done a study on it. I, I put out little quote cards on it when I read it as well. And to reemphasize the point, and the fun thing too is you and I did not coordinate mentioning this book and I am completely with you. Atomic Habits is fantastic. Mm-hmm. It helps you make small those small atomic small particle changes to rid yourself of the habits that are negative and unhealthy in your life and also to add the habits that are healthy in your life. I literally have done that every single day. Jordan Harbinger does this. He actually had one of those little atomic habits. When you walk through a door, and I'm sure you did something similar, and you want to present your best self in front of an audience or in front of a group, you have to make sure that you smile. you stand straight up, you put your shoulders back a little bit. And if you don't usually do that in order to make that a a habit, he actually puts post-its around the house on all the doors. And so by having that little reminder, when you walk through that door, do this, walk through this door, do this, it becomes a new habit. But again, atomic habits, folks. So get both Gavin's books as well as James (laughs) Clear's books. (laughs) So, And if James Clear, if you're listening, thank you. Absolutely. It was life-changing for me. (laughs) So, Gavin, I want to thank you for coming on and sharing these amazing insights. We didn't even touch the surface. And so for folks listening, Lena Sisko has been on the show. Gavin's been on the show. So stand by. I got a feeling we're going to be doing a lot more maybe together on the three of us because this is the treasure trove of curiosity and human behavior. All right, Gavin, thanks very much. Thank you for having me. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Forged by Trust. If you enjoyed the show, took away a few new tools, I hope you will leave a great review of the show to show your support. If you're interested in more information about how to forge your own trust-building strategies, please visit my website at www.peopleformula.com. You can also reach out to me on any of my social media sites included in the show notes. I'm looking forward to sharing my next Forger Trust episode with you next week when we chat with Kimberly Weefling and how power is poisoning.